This episode is brought to you by Auth0. That's Auth0.com. In this episode, we have speaker, senior director of product strategy at Oracle, and author of the new book, Voice Content and Usability, Preston So. We discuss building conversational designs that are ethical, accessible, and usable. Hey, welcome to Thunder Nerds. I'm Brian Hinton. I'm Frederick Philip Von Weiss, and thank you so much for consuming the Thunder Nerds, a conversation with the people behind the technology that love what they do and do tech good. Thanks, everybody, for watching. And, uh, you know, we have a sponsor helping us do tech good. Maybe Brian will speak to that, Brian. Yeah, yeah, we'd like to thank Auth0 as this season's sponsor again. Uh, they make it easy for developers to build a custom, secure, and standards-based unified login by providing authentication and authorization as a service. To try it out, go to Auth0.com today. Uh, Auth0 also has their own YouTube and Twitch under that their username, Auth0, with some great developer resources and streams. And Avocado Labs is an online destination that their developer advocates run, organizing some great meetup events. And again, remember to check out Auth0.com today. Thanks again. Thanks so much, Brian. So with uh, that being said, and uh, without any adieus being furthered, let's go ahead and get to our guest and welcome him back. We have author of the new book, Voice Content and Usability, Senior Director product strategy at Oracle speaker, Preston So. Preston, welcome back to the show. Really appreciate welcome. you being with us. Hey, Frederick. Hey, Brian. Thanks so much for having me back on Thunder Nerds. It's, uh, might I say, a real pleasure to be back here one more time to talk about my new book. Thanks for having me. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, uh, we started a little late. You have an event that you were just doing. You mind telling us a little bit about that event and what that was? I will. And, you know, my first uh, and you know, foremost, uh, dear apologies to everyone who was waiting for this live stream. Um, I had the misfortune of forgetting to send out a confirmation email and a email that actually had, let's say, hey, this event is happening today. So we started a, a bit late and we ended a bit late. It was my launch event for my new book, which is here, Voice Content and Usability. And uh, yeah. we had a great time doing some discussion about the implications of voice interfaces for those of us who work with the web, which is, I think, a lot of us in the Thunder Nerds audience, as well as the implications of voice on our society. And of course, the uh, vaunted and traditional book cake, which is something that everyone at A Book Apart, my publisher, um, has to unveil. Uh, as part of the process of launching a new book. It was a very, very interesting uh, process, but uh, very sorry to those who were waiting on this uh, YouTube. Quite right. so, uh, sorry, did you say a book cake? Like literally a, a cake. cake? Yeah, book cake. Wow. Uh, maybe I'm saying too much. I don't know how- Oh, like, like a sheet be. cake, gotcha. Yeah, like a sheet, yeah, like, you know, not like everything no, is cake, cool. you know, oh, yeah. it's all cake. That, you know, yes, you know, it's all cake as well. But the uh, book cake is basically like, oh, you're supposed to have a cake that looks like your book and um, kind of oh, uh, I love that. represents your book. Yeah. Uh, so it was a great launch event. And um, it was a real pleasure to kind of share a little bit about the process I went through writing the book and some of the really exciting things that uh, I talk about in it. Love that. And speaking of the book, we're going to be giving away three copies of the ebook courtesy of a book apart today so um if if you can just live chat with us uh ask us your questions maybe tell us you want a book we're going to randomly give away some books so we'll be doing that as the uh, show progresses on so preston first let me uh talk to you a little bit about uh, you were with us last time promoting your last book uh de decoupling drupal am i saying that correctly yep decoupled right. drupal in practice yep mm -hmm. A couple of people in practice. Great. So, um, how how was the success of that, and how did that uh, prompt you to 
uh, start writing a new book. I, I mean, you you just wrote that book not too long ago, and all of a sudden you have another book. So I see a pattern every year, a new book, right? <laughs> well, you know, I wish I could come out with a new book every year, like someone, you know, would, would say R.L. Stein or, you know, Goosebumps or something like that. But um, this has been a really interesting process because my books tend to be very focused on uh, really technical aspects of the ways in which we work with our content and the ways in which we work on the web. The first book I wrote was back in 2018, to couple Drupal in practice. And I think one question I get a lot, and, and you know, definitely happy to answer that for some of those on the call or you know, those in the audience, um, is what's it, what, what is it like as a technologist to write a book, um, especially for those who are developers or designers? So this book is actually my first book that is not a coding book, not a uh, technical book. It doesn't have any code snippets in it. Well, maybe it has a couple of uh, code formatted sections that are really tiny, but it doesn't really have any sort of tutorials as to how to spin up a command line interface or things like that. It's really focused on the user experience and design audience and the accessibility audience, which is a very different audience from the audiences that I'm used to writing for. What's interesting is that Decoupled Drupal in practice is about the architectural underpinnings or the foundation of how you can deploy content that's oriented towards things like JavaScript applications or other sorts of environments like voice interfaces, um, but it really dives into the nitty gritty. Voice content and usability, however, is really unlike that because it really focuses on how we as designers, as user experience professionals who are working on usability testing or usability research um, can really engage with this new field that is emerging around voice interface design and specifically around things like voice content strategy and voice content design. But the other thing I will say is that I actually made the mistake, I had the privilege, or some would say the misfortune, of writing two books at the same time over the past year and a half. And the other book that I've got coming out is this fall, Gatsby, The Definitive Guide, which is about Gatsby.js, the static site framework. Um, so right back in the other direction. <laughs> so you're going to write that I called it. You three? got a book every other year. Next year? Three next every year. year? Is that what you're going to write? Uh, three? You know, I was thinking more Fibonacci sequence, actually, Brian. You know, like I think I should write five and then eight and then 13. Um, yeah, they might get a little shorter and they might be filled with some more memes. Uh, so, but uh, so why uh, voice content and usability? Like, why did you, you're like, okay, now I, I really think I need to write this book. Yeah, yeah, specifically too. If yeah. I could append to that point, Brian, like why, yeah. like you, you, you said yourself, like you moved away from like, like a coding kind of thing. Like, wh why go that way into the accessibility? So I've always been uh, really into web development, but my really core interest and passion has always been for design and user experience. I started out as a web designer. I started out as a print designer. I actually also did computer programming back in the you know back in those days and got into web development that way but it really wasn't necessarily something that was um, an itch I got to scratch very much this aspect of design and user experience that is beyond the web and I've always been interested not only in how we can serve some of the users who are interacting with some of the content that we produce or some of the experiences that we create in um, terms of technology beyond the web, I was also really interested in how we can actually best serve users that already exist and users that are already within the demographics of the audiences that we're trying to serve. Um, I've always been interested in web accessibility first and foremost, as well as some of the aspects of how accessibility really changes the ways that we think about other user interfaces that might not have gotten so much attention from the standpoint of how they can better serve disabled users and those um, who might be elderly and have a little bit more trouble, uh, for example, using a mouse or typing on a keyboard. And those two audiences specifically, the elderly and uh, disabled communities around uh, uh, the US were communities that we aimed to serve with the first ever voice interface for residents of the state of Georgia. I worked on Ask Georgia Gov, which had the specific goal of really focusing on how we can serve 
residents of the state of Georgia who want to be able to find out things like registering the vote or how they can get a small business loan or how they can renew their fishing license without necessarily having to incur the cognitive costs of either interacting with a screen reader driven website or interacting with let's say, uh, somebody in person at an agency office. And I think one of the really interesting insights that we found is that, you know, I think really unexpectedly is that a lot of the websites that we build, obviously, we think that nowadays, because so many people use the web, because disabled folks use screen readers, because so many people now are used to the paradigm of the web, the website is really kind of the, the, the gospel of how people should now consume content and how people do consume content. But I think one of the things that's been borne out by this project is that the kinds of things that people would ask an Amazon Alexa sitting in their own home about the state of Georgia and the government capabilities that are available to them were completely different and in some cases diametrically opposed to the sorts of queries and things that people would search for on the georgia.gov website, which is the ultimate source of all of the information that we used. And that really illuminates a little bit of this, uh, I would say a little bit of this um, hidden bias that we have towards the mm -hmm. website as the primary conduit for information, when in some ways, it really should be just considered one facet of a wide variety of ways to access our content equitably. So then what do we do? Are, are we expected to um, have multiple locations for our content? Like specifically, I'm going to build content for voice or I'm going to build content for a website and I'm going to build content that goes into, a, uh, into an application. Or, am I, uh, or, or does it behoove us to write content that is uh, uniform and maybe in a specific way, and possibly you might answer what way that that might be as one source of truth? That's a really challenging question. And obviously, I uh, shouldn't really go too far here without saying that some of those questions are answered in my book, Voice Content and Usability at a book apart. Sure. sure. And, but... and please don't give everything away. Just, just <laughs> a little bit. Could you read the whole book out loud, please? <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> then we'd be here one. all day. Yeah, you know, um, we have I wish time. I could. Yeah, we do have. <laughs> so what I will say is that this is an this is a perennial debate, right? I think one of the okay. things that we as designers um, struggle with as we really deal with this exploding kind of menagerie of user experiences that we increasingly have to deal with is, well, what do we do with our data? What do we do with all of these things that we've built that are in some ways very much oriented towards or very focused on the audiences that we've cultivated over time, namely our websites and mobile applications being for these very visually rooted experiences and demographics that are used to these visual experiences. The things that are really problematic about some of the approaches that were characteristic of the early days of voice content, let's say, when people were experimenting with voice interfaces or chatbots as a means to deliver certain types of content, is that you would have a parallel version of the information that was already housed in your website. And um, those of us who are content designers or content strategists can really feel the pain that comes from the notion of having a set of content over here in one silo that's destined for the website and another piece of content over here that's destined for a voice interface. How do you keep those two things in sync? And now that we have regulations like GDPR and uh, HIPAA, for example, that really obligate that content stays current or that content stays up to date with what we need it to serve, how do we actually make sure that all of this content stays up to date without having it be in a single source of truth for content? Now, my book definitely doesn't make any prescriptions about going in terms of one direction or the other where, oh, yeah, you must do it this way or you must do it that way because there are exceptions to everything and you know nothing is ever cut and dry. However, I generally err on the side of saying that, well, look at the case of what we did with the state of Georgia. Georgia.gov, they insisted actually that we use one single source of truth for content that was going to be an omni-channel or channel agnostic source of truth for content because ultimately a lot of us don't have the luxury to maintain multiple versions of content that are destined for multiple conduits of content. So we ended up keeping it all in one source and we ended up maintaining it all in one source and um, having both voice and web versions of the content pull from the exact same repository of content, which ends up being more scalable in the long run, especially now that Georgia has built an additional chatbot 
that is a written chatbot, a textual chatbot that also pulls mm-hmm. from the same content. I'm curious over the course of uh, your research and writing this book, was there anything that you're that shocked you or surprised you that you didn't like you didn't immediately realize? Yeah, uh, that's a great question, Brian. I, there's uh, well, you know, there's too many to list because I think one of the things that's really yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> one of the things that's really uh, tough about voice interfaces is that up until recently, it's been really challenging for a lot of those who are not computational linguists or machine learning engineers or mm-hmm. people who are really deeply involved in some of these very low-level technologies to really get involved with voice. Um, however, one of the things I will share is that in some ways, there's really interesting emergences of some of the foibles in voice interface design that surface when you start working with this technology that are very reminiscent of back in the day. And, and you know, those of us who are listening to Thunder Nerds who have worked in the web for a while will recognize, for example, the things that we used to deal with in the early 2000s or mid 2000s, like quirks mode compatibility or uh, mm-hmm. some of the really odd browser hacks that we had to do with CSS. And there's weird things like that in voice interfaces. One example of this that I'll share, and I'll keep it just to one, is when we build Ask Georgia Gov, which of course is that voice interface for the residents of the state of Georgia, there was a situation where we uh, had a retrospective. And one of the things that we did for Georgia was they wanted to have the ability to administer and manage all this content in one single place. And we had a parallel set of logs and reports that would sit right next to the logs and reports for the website. So whenever somebody would hit a 404 error on the website, um, they could compare and see how many times did this piece of content also error out, for example, for uh, the voice interface for Alexa. Were there situations where the search returned no results or where it triggered 404 errors on the content management system that we were using on the um, to serve both the website and the voice interface? So we had this retrospective about eight months after the launch of the interface, which was um, in 2017. And we had a discussion about some of the logs and we kind of leafed through them and said, okay, what are some of the errors that we're seeing and what are some of the things that we can do to either adjust the content or maybe even do some debugging of the interface itself? There was this one result that kept on coming up over and over again, this one error, this 404 error, basically a search that somebody conducted that returned no results, no content. And it was the word lossens. L-A-W-S-O-N apostrophe S. And this kept on popping up over and over and over again. It was about 16 times, if I remember correctly, in the log. And we thought, who is searching? Who wants to search for this like proper noun, this brand name, this, this person named Lawson? Like, you know, did they get this confused with the different kind of application on their Alexa that they're trying to use? And we sat there and scratched our heads for a few minutes. And one of the native Georgians in the room she suddenly perked up and she said, you know what? I think what it is, is I think it's somebody who is from Georgia, who has a Southern drawl, who is trying to say the word license, as in driver's license or nursing license or fishing license. And sure enough, that was exactly what happened. And this is one of those situations where, hey, you know, you can do the best designed application that adheres to the latest and greatest standards and specifications like we did back in those days with CSS and come within an inch of perfection when it comes to these voice interfaces that we build custom. But ultimately, it's in the hands of people like Amazon or Google, whether or not they can actually understand the kaleidoscope of American English dialects that we have in this country and that we really should be able to understand. And I think it's a really good sign that yeah, these voice assistants are really good, but they're not yet at that point where they can beat us at our own game of human conversation. Yeah, this brings me, uh, if you don't mind, really quick, Brian. This brings yeah, me to uh, something that Todd uh, Todd Libby wrote here, and he uh, he also appended to his question: uh, Were there edge? And he wrote challenging. Were there challenging edge cases with respect to a eleven Y that you ran into the Georgia project? So. Um, yeah, great question, Todd. Um, and when it comes to the work that we did on on accessibility on uh, Ask Georgia Gov, 
you know, in terms of edge cases, I will share that I think one of the big challenges there were several challenges, right? And 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 one I think is is in, is is one of the you know one of those challenges that's inherent to voice interfaces that are that are peer voice interfaces, which I um, and others define as basically a voice interface that lacks a screen. So there's no visual component, no tactile or or physical component. Um, yeah, not a, not a GUI. You're basically just interacting with uh, somebody through the spoken word, um, and I think this is not really an edge case. So, so I don't want to uh, kind of say that this answers the question. But one of the things that I think a lot of people forget, and I think is really important to keep in mind when working with voice interfaces, when it comes to extending the accessibility of your content on a website or your web properties, is the fact that peer voice interfaces um, that are uh, lacking in a, in, a, in a visual or physical component um, are actually not accessible to certain disabled people, namely those who are deaf or those who are deafblind. And the notion that I think a lot of people have today is, uh, well, voice interfaces can solve a lot of cases for accessibility, but that's really not the case because when it comes to uh, so many of the demographics that we need to serve in the disabled community, there are uh, certain solutions that only go part of the way there. And sign language, um, how are you going to do that? <laughs> yep. And yeah, so yeah. that's, yep, yep, you know, that's, that's exactly right. Like, you know, how do we also make sure that we can serve content in a more consumable way to refreshable braille displays that are maybe not necessarily the same thing as the kind of, uh, let's say, screen reader experience that's very rooted in the visual structure of a web page. It's, it's very early days still in um, this, this, this sort of notion of multimodal accessibility or how to really make sure that a lot of the user interfaces that we have are not actually stepping on the toes of other folks who are accessing content in particular ways. The edge case, however, that I will share is I think a lot of people also make the assumption that these voice interfaces and voice assistants can be sort of a, a you know the ultimate solution for a lot of folks who are blind or low vision. But that's really a tough sell in some ways because I think one of the things that's really important to recognize about these peer voice interfaces like Alexa is that they have a learning curve too. Uh, we know that screen readers and um, some of these, you know, browsers or or screen readers like uh, Chromevox or or Jaws have issues that require people to ascend a very steep learning curve to use them in an effective and efficient way. And voice interfaces are very much the same way. So one of the things that we encountered during our usability testing was um, just sort of one of those things that we didn't necessarily expect, which is that a lot of people that we uh, had come in and uh, work with us and uh, go through our usability study really had very little experience with uh, with Alexa devices. And I think for um, those who are looking at voice interfaces as a means to um, uh, be a compelling potential side along alternative to screen readers that that might that, that might potentially be a little bit problematic in how they uh, you know efficiently guide users to their content as uh, as the voice interface designer Chris Mari writes um, it is something to think about which is well, there is still a learning curve, and how do you actually address that learning curve in a way that makes sense to those users that you need to serve? Yeah, I'm curious in the, the sense of Georgia, we're, we're at my current role, we're working on a chatbot, and one thing that we've found most difficult is, I think it's called semantic parsing, uh, where, you know, converting that conversation into what logically makes sense. <laughs> uh, what are they asking? It's like the difference, like, the capital of Georgia, what someone's saying, capital of Georgia, and that's all they say, or what's the capital of Georgia, or Georgia's capital is, like, um, did you encounter anything weird in that sense or any, uh, you know, cases in with Georgia? Yeah, uh, I talk about this a lot in chapter three of my book, which is about writing those uh, conversational dialogues that really are the lattice work of the voice interfaces that we produce. And it's a really challenging kind of thing because a lot of these questions, Brian, are really yeah. rooted in the technology that you're using. Because um, some voice ecosystems or conversational ecosystems are better equipped to deal with, let's say, variations like the ones that you mentioned just now than others are. Um, but there is a lot of work being done to improve the situation. So back in the day, 
uh, in 2016 when we worked on AskGeorgiaGov. And in the grand scheme of voice interfaces and the history of conversation design, five years ago is a long, long time ago. I mean, it's you know, you, we might as well be talking about clay tablets and abacuses at this point because that was an era where a lot of those utterances that people would state um, in order to do a process of what's called intent identification, where the okay. user interface yeah. is able to piece together a sense of what the user actually wants to achieve, which is much easier said than done. Um, that's a process that used to be very much a sort of manually driven process. For example, let's say that you're trying to identify um, a, yeah, you know, you're trying to identify a question like, uh, you know, what is the capital of Georgia? It has to be phrased like a question, let's say. And one of the things that I think is really challenging for a lot of people who are just getting started with voice interfaces is that some of these ecosystems, some of these technologies obligate you to be very clear about defining how the user has to respond. And as we know, as users, the ways that we actually respond to some of these questions and the ways in which we actually say some of these things can be phrased completely differently from the ways in which we've actually coded um, the voice interfaces or conversational interfaces or chatbots to consider. And whenever we have what's called a an out-of-domain error where the uh, chatbot or the conversational interface or voice interface isn't able to actually understand what you're saying because the way that you phrased it, even though it's a perfectly logical thing, isn't accounted for within the context of what the voice interface is, is, is able to understand through its uh, programming um, is a very, very big problem. So I talk about intent identification and, and, and sort of the problems that occur when you have these um, very dedicated slots or tokens or some of these. Um, you know, basically this teasing out process that you have to do with intent identification that really relies on some of these boilerplate templates that users have to use to say these things. But that's not how we speak. That's not natural, right? Like nobody no. really wants to have to say things the same way over and over again to be understood by a voice interface. Although there is usability research evidence that suggests that some users do prefer that. So, um, but there are some ecosystems now, like Dialogflow, for example, or or um, you know some of the major new uh, conversational uh, tools that are out there are getting better at sort of understanding, let's say, all the different variations that you could possibly have, and being able to intelligently parse through that and say, okay, this is the intent of what the user is trying to do, even though uh, this person might have said something that's very remote from the, let's say. Uh, normal way or the default way that we would expect. Yeah, my my favorite like real life scenario of like be my my brain being the AI trying to understand is when I somewhere I can't remember where I was Midwest that they asked like what Coke do you want? Uh, they asked, and I said Coke, and they're like, I'm sorry, we have Pepsi. <laughs> is that okay? Yeah, uh, because Coke, it's yeah, that's what they call yeah. everything. <laughs> and Coke. so like the, I can't imagine like dealing with those sort of scenarios in an AI type. Uh, uh, yeah, you know that's funny too because it, it, it could be something where um, if you're trying to uh, communicate something out um, to the to the bot or the voice technology, you got to think about the the context of the personification of, of this voice, right? Or or the the overall brand. Like if I'm uh, interacting with a hospital, I don't want the the voice to sound like all silly and goofy. I, I you know, I want it to sound like a, a just a normal, regular voice. Like there are some kind of situations um, that that you might want, or or even languages for that matter. Like if if I'm somebody mm -hmm. in Italy and I'm looking for a lasagna recipe, and I'm in Italy and I'm looking for a lasagna recipe, and I go to and it sends me to Food Network and it starts reading me like a emerald recipe in a, in English and I don't understand English. Like there's all kinds of interesting um, uh, facets to this, right? Yeah, this really brings up I think a couple of interesting elements of the ways in which the conversation design or voice interface design landscape really requires us to think very differently about some of the things that we usually took for granted. And one of those really is, is the building blocks of language. And I'm very lucky in that um, working with voice interfaces over the past five or six years has really allowed me to scratch my itch when it comes to my academic background, which is actually in linguistics. I have a degree in linguistics. Not a lot of people know that. Um, but the biggest issue I think a lot of us face is we're moving 
uh, in several directions at the same time. The first is that we're moving a lot of the ways in which we used to write user interface text or uh, content from the written word over into the spoken word, which is a very different realm from how we normally write UI text or we how, how you know how we how we normally actually write content. And uh, just one example to illustrate that is the fact that we don't really say the phrase to whom it may concern when we actually speak. And we also don't really write the word literally as often as we say it in conversation. So a lot of these little nuances are things that can often be missed. And there's two ways in which this really can be a problem. The first is that there are certain expectations that users will have that their voice interface reflects the kind of informal or colloquial conversation that they might have with a friend. And when it doesn't reflect that, and when the voice interface comes out with this very kind of stilted utterance or something that's very uncanny valley-like, that can really interrupt or dislodge the user from what uh, uh, is uh, called habitability. Um, in a voice interface. This is something that is talk talked about quite a bit in voice interface literature, where the user has to feel like they're not going to want to actually tear their hair out um, or what little hair they have in terms of having a conversation with a uh, voice interface. So that's number one. But I think number two is really interesting, uh, given that you alluded to some of the challenges around multilingual uh, types of conversation. And this really comes to, I think, some of the elements of voice interface design that remain uh, a largely unexplored area and also an area that is very challenging because of the fact that so much of our conversational technology and voice interface technology has so far been rooted in the English-speaking world. And one of those issues is when we think about the ways in which we want to serve multilingual audiences and international audiences on the web, Oh, we just got to provide translatable strings, right? We just got to provide like these versions of these different pieces of text that we have or different pieces of content we have. But that is a very, very different kind of proposition when it comes to some of these other languages. And I think one of the biggest issues that we have to focus on is the fact that not all languages work like English. Not all languages operate in the same kinds of systems and the same kinds of assumptions that a lot of us have about English. And one of the things that is really interesting to me is that I'm noticing more and more some of this Anglophone privilege or Anglophone bias in a lot of the voice interfaces that are coming out that are meant to be uh, multilingual or also you know, direct translations of an English interface. Because fundamentally, some languages simply do not work the same way as English. There's a phenomenon in linguistics called diglossia. And this is something I talk about on my blog, Preston.so. And this notion of diglossia is actually a phenomenon I studied also when I was in college, where the written form of a language is so vastly different from the spoken form of a language that they might as well be considered two different dialects or two different vernaculars. And in some cases, wow. like Brazilian Portuguese, for example, you really have to learn two different grammatical systems and two different uh, lexicons and two different approaches to the language in order to make yourself understood. Because if I went out on the street and I started speaking in the way that I write, I wouldn't actually be necessarily understood. I'd be understood because people would be able to understand, but it would be a very strange and off-putting conversation. What I find is very interesting with a lot of the work that conversation designers are doing today is that uh, there's a lot of focus on efficiency and scalability, where we can build one single conversational agent or one single conversational interface that manifests as a chat bot, as a Slack bot, as a WhatsApp bot, Facebook Messenger bot, and as an Alexa skill and a Google Assistant. But there's a big problem with that because that assumes that the same kind of conversation you would have with a chat bot is going to be the kind of conversation you have with a voice interface. And one of the things that we see in linguistics and also in the kinds of conversations that we have on a daily basis through email and text and at the deli counter, it isn't the case that our spoken conversations are word for word or even letter for letter exactly the same as our written conversations. And for those who don't speak English, for those who are operating in a realm where let's say that you know the language that they're that they're writing for is, is not English, a lot of those considerations and concerns become a lot more important and essential when it comes to some of the design that we have to do. And I think this means that uh, we have a long ways to go in the English speaking world to understand how some of these conversational interfaces uh, really are rooted in our ways of speaking in 
ways that might not be so appropriate for the rest of the world that we need to serve. Yeah, that, all this made me think of a book I recently read, Word Word by Word, uh, The Secret Life of Dictionaries. Um, and it's a fantastic book, but it's like the slang too of how, you know, you mentioned between um, the different versions of Portuguese, the slang is different, um, like Mexican slang versus Spanish, Spanish Mexican slang versus Spain, uh, Spanish slang, very different and English slang different, like someone saying, and also how people say things like cool versus cool, like completely different. <laughs> um, and how, how to interpret that, uh, like, yeah, tone. Yeah. yeah, tone, exactly. Yeah. And I think this really illustrates a couple of different things, right? You've got the subtext that is yeah. not something you see in UI text or in web content or in any yeah, of exactly. the written word mediums that we have, right? And paralinguistics is kind of this realm of, okay, how do you actually, you know, really reflect back the fact that the user or the interface might be speaking in a sarcastic tone or in a more sighing tone? or in a very stilted tone, like those three things can mean very different things, even though they all use the same uh, single sentence. But the other thing that's really interesting too, Brian, and I think you raised a really good point there, which is, you know, it's not just the fact that we have all these differences between languages and, and the ways that they operate. We also have very important differences, like I mentioned earlier with that Lawson's example, uh, around those of us who speak English. And one of the things that worries me a lot about some of these voice interfaces is, first of all, the fact that you know we hear fundamentally one single dialect represented oftentimes in this you know realm of voice interfaces. And it's very similar in some ways to the ways in which newscasters and weather uh, forecasters used to have to be obligated by their organizations to speak using a middle American or general American dialect. It was unacceptable in certain past decades in the news media for somebody to speak with a Southern accent or somebody to speak with a different dialect of American English on the air. And that's something that's represented now in voice interfaces in both a very limiting and very pernicious way, because as we know from interacting with so many different people from so many different walks of life, not only do we have examples of people who, you know, might be bilingual or who might be members of, uh, you know, queer or trans communities who have to switch between different modes of speech or those who are bilingual uh, descendants of immigrant communities who have to be able to uh, code switch between English and Spanish. Why aren't those sorts of interesting toggles and those sorts of interesting nuances represented in voice interfaces too, because maybe the kind of conversation that I want to have is the kind of conversation that I would have at home in New Delhi, where I'm switching in between English and Hindi mid-sentence, or I'm switching in between English and Marathi mid-sentence. So these sorts of considerations are not only important for those who are users of English in um, you know, outside of America, which I think is, you know, one example of the Americocentric approach that we oftentimes have with technology uh, all over the place. But also the fact that we have very marginalized and underrepresented and uh, oppressed uh, groups of people in the United States who speak in certain ways that are not reflected in how we want voice interfaces to speak as well. And I think one very compelling example, two very compelling examples of this is, you know, first of all, the fact that um, the ways in which people use uh, AAVE or African-American vernacular English is very mm. different from the sorts of voice interfaces that we interact with. For example, why is it that you know, we can't hear those sorts of conversations represented in an Alexa device. It has something to do with the intrinsic bias that a lot of us have for a more middle American or general American approach to the conversations that we have, which is, of course, fundamentally and foundationally a white American form of speech. And by the same token, you know, we know uh, that those who identify as LGBTQ have very different approaches to using certain language. There are certain code terms, there are certain colloquialisms that are really not understood by audiences that are outside of that community. And how do we make sure that voice interfaces can also represent those things? And this ties back to one of the things I talk about in the final chapter of my book, which really is 
focus on the problems that surface that we don't consider when we go willy-nilly into this realm of voice interfaces and serving people through conversation in ways that we don't expect. And one of those examples is, well, think about why organizations today and think about why it is that so many people want to get into voice interfaces and want to get into chatbots in the first place. Well, so many people are doing this because these airlines, hotels, large companies, corporations, they fundamentally want to be able to reduce the load on their customer service frontline agents or those who are call center staffers. But if you think about it, who are these call center staffers? Who are these people who answer your call when you're calling them in the middle of the night from the airport screaming about your lost luggage or screaming about your canceled flight? It's somebody who might be in the Philippines or somebody who might be in India or somebody who might be in the global south who is a person of color who is from a lower middle middle income country who doesn't have the resources necessarily to speak in a general American dialect in the same way that you would expect somebody who's from your own community to speak. And this really illustrates a very, I think, cons big concern in voice interfaces today, which is that when we begin to sterilize and flatten out all of these rich nuances that make our conversations with all of these different people and from all of these different lived experiences so important to our worldview and to the ways in which we interact with the world, what does that do to our future as users? What does that do to our level of trust in our user interfaces? What does that do to the credibility and the authority of those user interfaces and the information that they provide? Because let me be honest, when I think about the fact that a voice interface might lead to a Filipino uh, call center worker or somebody who is in Mumbai who is uh, in a call center losing their jobs, I'm not so sure that I want that replacement to be this uncanny valley voice that is very stilted and mechanical and might not necessarily reflect the world that we live in today. And I think this really ties into a lot of the issues that we face around uh, misinformation and automated racism and algorithmic oppression uh, that we see around machine vision and so on and so forth. Voice interfaces and voice technology and conversational technology, these are also domains that are not exempt from the issues that we have in society today. Yeah. We start losing the quality of humanity and what humanity is. It's, but is there anything, uh, I, I know you were talking a lot about in chapter six about about the future, are there any kind of um, uh, uh, brighter uh, notes that you could uh, no, point no, to? No, Frederick, there's none. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I don't yeah. want to go down the, the matrix <laughs> road, but like, are there any like cool new things that we could be looking forward to or uh, things that we could start thinking about now that would be advantageous for us to go, oh, you know what? Let me next year start thinking about this so I could get my projects ready. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's so much to think about. And obviously, I wouldn't have written this book if I thought it was going to be a dystopian nightmare <laughs> in the next few years or next few decades. Uh, because voice technology really does have a lot of uh, illuminating and very interesting uh, uh, you know, prospects. And I think there's really important things to call out there. Um, not just the fact that, and this is not something I, I mentioned very much in my book, but I do mention it very briefly in my uh, A List Apart article, Usability Testing for Voice Content, which is that there are a lot of people out there who really appreciate voice interfaces for one unexpected reason. And that is that I think, as we all know, a lot of us, uh, especially over the course of the last year and a half, and you know, I do want to make sure to hold space for those who are uh, still, you know, dealing with grief or suffering right now from the consequences of the coronavirus pandemic, um, especially, of course, in India and Australia currently going through a very severe lockdown and the and the third wave ongoing in Africa, um, which is that voice interfaces have been shown to stave off loneliness for a lot of people. There is research that suggests that having a voice interface that is there to have a conversation with um, is something that can be very beneficial for mental health. And in the future, as mm. these conversations become better and better, as voice interfaces get to the point where they can do much better small talk than you know these really simplistic, uh, let's say, gimmicky responses that they often issue, I think we can really look forward to a lot of interesting, uh, let's say, social uh, benefits from voice interfaces. The other one, though, I think is also the fact that um, there is going to be more efficiency when it comes to content delivery and information delivery. There's a 
futurist named Mark Curtis, who refers to what's called the conversational singularity. And we know about the kind of tech or AI singularity. The conversational singularity is along the same lines, which is this notion that as we move further and further into the future, there's going to be a point in time where conversational interfaces will be indistinguishable from other humans when it comes to the kind of conversation that we three are having right now. And one of the things that I think is important to call out, of course, is, well, okay, that's a great kind of future, but conversational singularity is going to be indistinguishable, but for whom, right? Like whose conversations are going to be indistinguishable, um, as I was just saying earlier. But I think one of the really interesting things about the conversational singularity and some of the let's say, conversation-centric approaches that are coming out, which wash away some of the weird distortions that we have today, some of these arbitrary lines in the sand that we have where you talk with a certain Alexa skill or a certain Google Assistant, and they can only help you with this one certain task. They can only help you order a pizza, but they can't help you book a flight. Um, these sorts of interactions will soon become much smoother because, you know what, maybe I do want to go directly into, just like I would with the hotel concierge, um, actually have a conversation that moves directly into ordering a pizza with extra pineapple as it should be, and then directly into booking a flight um, over to uh, uh, you know my favorite vacation destination. So <clears throat> a lot of these efficiencies are going to become very important in the future. And I think what's going to happen in the next few decades is we're, we'll, we'll start to see ways in which Okay, yeah, some of these you know issues that we have with how conversational interfaces work or reflect the world that we live in back at us um, are going to become better in terms of the efficiency and ultimately the performance of user interfaces in the same ways that websites and mobile applications have become much more efficient and much more able to get us over to the things that we want to do and see. I remember at uh, Google I.O. they had a, what was that one assistant that called to book a hair appointment for somebody and the, they were like, oh, yeah, you know, it's completely in indistinguishable from a person. Wrong. <laughs> I could totally tell. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying yeah. they said, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, yeah, I think you could tell, but they said, you know, and if you're on a, a phone call, you, things, Sometimes you know, you have good. things in the background, yeah. you, you're trying to get through things quickly. You're like, uh-huh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, it could work. I'm sure, you know, oh, one yeah. day, like you said, Preston, we'll get like that uh, that movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. I mean, who who among us hasn't accidentally answered like a, you know, automated phone call that sounds exactly like a conversation, one of those spam calls that we're all besieged by lately and answered mm -hmm. a question because it sounded so real or uh, perish the thought. And, and this is going to be very revealing. I think we've all done this. You accidentally answer somebody's voicemail automated uh, message saying, hey, it's Preston. Oh, hey, you know, uh, oh, leave a message yeah. with the tone. Oh, wait, okay. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, definitely done that. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's it's a really exciting time. And, uh, but I, you know, but I do think that, I think one of the things that's that's important, and I think this book is very timely, right? Because one of the things I will yeah. admit is that when this book first was being, you know, uh, germinated as an idea, I thought, you know, it, it might be a little early because this project that we did for Georgia was was very early in its time. It's one of the first ever content-driven, information-driven voice interfaces. It's also really one of the first, very few examples of state governments and local mm -hmm. governments doing this kind of work at the time too. Um, but now I think it's very timely because, you know, one of the things that we've seen over the course of the past year and a half is smart speakers, smart home systems, everyone's buying them. They're flying off the shelves. And increasingly here, as we re-enter the world or uh, live with the, the virus as it continues to um, be a problem for so many of us in the world, we're going to have to start getting used to some of these other ways of interacting with content, other ways of interacting with information, with use cases and applications that we need to actually go through. And voice is just one of those. And um, I think we're going to see a lot more investment and a lot more care from the user experience side, not just the developer side. Um, you know, in this realm of okay, we've done this for the web, and the web has served us really well for the last few decades. But how do we actually make sure that some of these more multimodal approaches, as we mentioned earlier, on accessibility, or some of these more interesting immersive or voice-driven oral uh, uh, and immersive approaches? can be things that will be compelling for users and designers and practitioners in the future as well. It makes sense. 
What do you think, Brian? Should we go to the uh, lightning round? Yeah, yeah. We're getting close to the end here. So we're... Lightning round time. I got my gloves on. Let's go ahead. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, so we're each going to ask you a question, uh, answer your, and, you know, one at a time. Um, and I'll go first. So would you rather be able to run at 100 miles per hour or fly at 10? I have to think about this one. Um, probably fly. And okay. it's, yeah, it's because you can see more. Yeah. That's fair. Preston, what is your favorite thing about yourself? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, well, oh, my gosh. These are some questions. Y'all really. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the last lightning round being like this. Uh, uh, let's think. Um, you know, I think my favorite aspect about myself is that I have learned a lot. And I've had the privilege of living in many different countries, which not everybody has the privilege to say. And that's given me a lot of good perspective. I'll say Ooh. that. Uh, would Would you rather live where it snows all the time or where the temperature never falls below 100 degrees? Wow. This is like Snowpiercer versus Dread 3D or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Uh, so... Def so I'm I'm somebody who needs so right now I am in an air conditioned room even though it's actually not that hot of a day here in New York City I need the cold I cannot deal with the heat and uh, so yeah definitely the snowing all the time I could probably be okay in in uh, Antarctica actually I would say <laughs> okay <laughs> Preston what book are you yourself reading uh, to uh, to learn from currently that you're enjoying. All right. Well, uh, I'm currently reading two, three different books. Um, the uh, not really making much progress in either of those. You know, it's kind of like the Fibonacci sequence of reading books uh, and increasing those every year. Um, one book that I'm reading, which I will share, which is a very um, esoteric book right now, is uh, Bosnian, Croatian, and Serbian, a textbook, because I'm learning uh, uh, Serbo-Croatian at the moment as a language. Mm. But I'm also reading two other books that are really interesting. Uh, the first is Conversations with Things, which is a book written by Rebecca Evanhoe. Um, and I forget the co-author's name. I have it right here. I should look at it. Um, as well as uh, Margot Bloomstein's book, Trustworthy, which is a book about um, how brands can be more authentic in uh, how they operate in terms of content strategy. Cool. So uh, what current fact about your life uh, would most impress your five-year-old self? Oh, my gosh. Wow. My five-year-old self. Gosh. I thought that was an easy yeah. question. You answered it last Did time. I... Did I really? Oh, my gosh. Uh, let me think. So, you know, the, 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 the fact about myself that people, you know, I think the fact that my five-year-old self would most be impressed by is... Um, the fact that, oh my gosh, uh, you know, probably the fact, go ahead. I remember last time you said, uh, moving to New York and working in New York was one of your childhood dreams. Uh, Don't ah, give them answers. <laughs> that's really funny. Cause that's not what I, that's not what I would say today. Actually. That's really interesting. Um, well, you know, what I'll, what I'll say is this actually, and I think this is a, this is an interesting one because, you know, just to get a little personal here, you know, when I was, and, and, you know, a lot of us dealt with this when we were younger, you know, a lot of us as children, as young toddlers or as young, uh, kids, we deal with, uh, speech impediments or other issues with, um, let's say, you know, pronouncing words correctly or uh, doing those sorts of things. And I grew up with a speech impediment, which makes also some of the uh, voice technology kind of things really poignant. Um, so what I would say is my five-year-old self would definitely be very proud of me for the fact that I uh, can basically go on stage in front of 3,000 people and not break a sweat. Um, or have this live stream with also 3,000 people. Of course, there's 3,000 people listening to this right now um, and not break a sweat either. So uh, yeah, yeah, with a, with a personal note there. Nice. What is the most interesting thing that you learned in the process of writing this book? Most interesting thing that I learned in the process of writing this book. The most interesting thing I learned in the process of writing this book is probably the 
unexpected applications of accessibility and unexpected challenges around accessibility that occur with voice interfaces, especially given the fact that I think a lot of us who are accessibility uh, um, aficionados or those who are really um, passionate about accessibility, I think we oftentimes forget that uh, not only are there you know, uh, so many different types of interfaces that we need to consider. Um, the interface that has kind of become the most important one today, which is the screen reader for websites, is actually not necessarily the most optimal or pleasant experience. And um, I already did have a sense of this because I do do uh, a lot of, you know, uh, you know, and and this is one thing I think everybody should do is you should always take any sort of user interface you're building and use it from the perspective of somebody who's using a screen reader or somebody who's using um, an assistive interface because it is very important to understand uh, uh, how uh, people work from that perspective. Um, but one of the things, so I already knew that you know screen readers were really verbose, really tough. But I guess one of the things that I didn't necessarily realize is um, just how much people actually really don't like the screen reader sometimes and really see it as an obstacle to uh, getting to what they need. That was a very long answer. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's OK. It's lightning. <laughs> what, what book uh, has made you cry? Mm. What book has made me cry? Huh. Gosh, yeah. That's a really interesting question. Wow. You know, uh, uh, there's been, there's definitely been, um, you know, many books that have made me cry. I would say uh, the book that both made me cry and made the deepest impact um, on me is probably, oh my gosh, I'm just trying to think about this now because, um, yeah, I mean, the what I will say is the the book that has definitely made the biggest impact on me and made me cry both of those was probably Invisible Man, um, which is a book that I recommend everybody read. It's it's one of those books that you read in high school or 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 college English class, but um, it's it's a very important book and something that uh, I think everybody should should definitely read. Nice. I'm I'm out of uh, uh, lightning round questions. Brian, do you have anything else on that? Oh, no, I think we're good. Great. Well, let's get to our final topic here. At the end, Preston, we like to ask our guests for parting words of wisdom. Uh, any kind of uh, things that we'd like to uh, uh, tell our audience at the end here? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, well, you know, I think my biggest parting words of advice for everyone, and this is not just those who are in the design field or who are uh, in the technology world, um, but I think one of the things that I would recommend for everyone who is uh, watching this or listening to this or will watch or listen to this um, is that it's really important to really listen to and uplift and amplify and also hear and take into account in your own day-to-day -day work and your own day-to-day -day life the lived experiences of those who are completely unlike you. And by completely unlike you, I mean all of those people who face uh, multiple axes of marginalization or oppression or who face very deep obstacles in our world today who might be disabled, might be women or femmes, might be people who are queer or trans, might be people who are of color, who are black or indigenous. Um, and I think one thing that is really important to me and one thing that's very uh, important to the way I live my life is um, to really deeply understand where everyone is coming from in terms of their context and in terms of how they have come to be the person that they are today. Because ultimately, as practitioners of technology, as those who work on technology, the ultimate reason we're doing this is to help everybody who is our audience succeed with what they're doing. And there's no way to do that unless you really deeply understand and take the time to learn about and uh, comprehend 
what it is that your audience goes through in any field that we work in as people in this uh, world that we live in. Very well said. Thank you, Preston. And uh, again, uh, all your social links we have uh, at Preston So on Twitter. Your website is Preston.so, uh, Preston So on LinkedIn. And of course, the new book, Voice Content and Usability by Preston So at uh, Preston.so slash books slash voice hyphen content. Get it there today. Preston, again, Thank you so much for being on the show. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for hey. taking the time with us. Thank yeah, you both thank so much. It was such a pleasure to be here on Thunder Nerds again, and I'd love to come back sometime. Uh, maybe I'll rehearse some lightning talk or lightning question responses <laughs> for next time. But thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yep. Thank you, Preston. Yeah, for the next book. We'll see you then. Thanks, everybody. Oh, yeah. oh wait, hold on. I got one last comment. Oh. Let's see. Uh, thank you for all. Oh, Todd, thank you for all the phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much, Todd. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Really appreciate it. Take care, everyone. See ya. Thanks for consuming the Thunder Nerds. We honestly and sincerely appreciate you watching and or listening to the show. Please subscribe on YouTube and iTunes. Write us review. Keep a few stars our way. I enjoy the best podcast for technology out there, and that is Thunder Nerds. Thunder Nerds. Thunder Nerds. That's our new intro. Exactly. <laughs> I hope you don't mind if we use that. I'll ask you about it after the show. Oh, I love penguins. I love Frederick. Oh, I love penguins. I should have known the Territor didn't mean us any harm when the Sword of Omens didn't obey me. And anyway, it was just plain stupid to assume it might be bad. Just what the <laughs> fuck am I talking about?